Amen, friends. If you would, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're going through a short series right now called Sojourners, about what it means to live for Christ and follow him as our example in the midst of a culture in which we don't quite totally fit in. We are sojourners in this life and in this world until he come again. So if you're joining us, we're into 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. So with that in mind, Christian, hear God's word to us out of 1 Peter chapter 2. A Christian, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters in all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be Amen. Let's be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you as we pray. Now, Jesus, we thank you that you both took our sins and that you give us an example to follow. And Father, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to empower us, to motivate us, and give us the energy to follow Jesus. Father, would we hear truly from your word, and would we apply it to our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I have to tell you very quickly uh, that this is a longer passage than normal for me. And uh, just uh, like the last two weeks, we kind of looked at a, a broad passage about our identity and how important that is. Really, today and the next time I preach in a couple weeks, it's really going to be centering on this passage. So I just want to give you a quick disclaimer. There are going to be topics and issues in this passage that I'm not going to address today simply because we just don't have time, but I am going to be picking it up in a couple weeks. So don't worry. There are issues. Uh, for instance, about what slavery and servanthood were like in Peter's day and what that means for us in America and our history and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to talk about that today, but just stick around in a couple weeks and we'll pick that up uh, soon. But today, what I want to ask you about and what I want you to focus on is this idea, this beautifully profound truth that in Christ Jesus, we have an example. 
We have an example to follow for how we live this life. Uh, so when, you, when it comes to understanding this particular passage, the easiest way to sort of approach it is to ask yourself this question. Uh, what was Jesus doing on the cross? What was Jesus accomplishing on the cross? Right? What was he ex Why did he die on the cross? What is he doing? Well, uh, the classic Christian explanation is that on the cross, Jesus, God in human form, is taking the punishment that our sins deserved, right? The Bible tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And now God has laid the punishment that you and I deserve, the wrath of God against sin and injustice. Instead of putting that on us, God became a human and said, I will take the punishment for them to prove that God is both just because he will not endure injustice. He punishes it but also to prove that God is gracious and forgiving. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, at the cross, we see that God is both just in that he punishes sins, but he's also the justifier of the one who believes. So at the cross, we see the breadth and the height and the depth and the width of God's justice and mercy and kindness, right? Because he does not look away from sin, he punishes it. But because he's loving and forgiving, he takes the punishment himself, and he offers full reconciliation, eternity with him for anyone who will turn from their sins and repent and believe, right? If that's what you believe, you believe what most Christians throughout history have always believed, and that is the orthodox Christian stance. But what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible, uh, you know, if, if that's sort of like the main current in the river, you know, you know about rivers, you know how there's like a, a main current, then there's like an undercurrent underneath that, you know, that's the main current. Most of the time when Paul or the Bible is talking about Jesus's death on the cross, that's the main idea. He took the punishment for us so that we could be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. But just as like that's the main current, there is an undercurrent uh, in application, if you will, in application of that truth, there is an undercurrent uh, that the New Testament will point to a surprisingly high amount of times. And what that undercurrent is, is that on the cross, not only does Jesus die for us and offer us salvation through faith, the undercurrent, the application, is that Jesus is also our example for how to live our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, the fancy theological term for this is the exemplar view of the atonement. <laughs> Isn't that a fun phrase? All it means is that as the exemplar, he is the example for us to live. Now, both of those things are simultaneously true, uh, but primarily Jesus died to reconcile us to himself and to God the Father. And the New Testament will also say that he is also giving us an example to live this day-to-day -day life. In fact, that's the exact word that Peter uses. Did you catch that? It's right there in verse 21 in your passage. He says, for to this you have been called, that is to follow Jesus, because Christ also suffered for you, right? There's the atonement. Jesus died for you. And he also did what? Also true, by doing so, he, has le he is leaving for us a what? An example. 
right? So both of those things are true. So what is the example? Well, if you've hung around this long with me, you'll know that what I've been suggesting to you for like weeks on end is that First Peter is, uh, it's a book of the Bible, it's inerrant, it's holy, it's perfect, and it is also a strategy book for Christians living in a culture where uh, Christianity is not honored, Christians are insulted and maligned, they're called all kind of names, they're told they're on the wrong side of history, that they're weirdos, that they're narrow-minded, and this is a strategy for how Christians are supposed to live. This is our manual to live as sojourners, as resident aliens, as people who don't, you know, quite fit in in every sense of the term. You know, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? And so today what I'm suggesting to you is part of the strategy, part of the way we move forward is we see both the gospel of salvation but also that in the gospel, in the pro proclamation of Jesus's life, you and I are also given an example how to live in this life, right? So both of those things are true. One is the main current, one is the undercurrent, but we're going to focus on the undercurrent today a little bit. You tracking with me? So what does it mean to follow Jesus as our example? Well, let's dive right in. Well, verse uh, 2.13, Peter starts to unpack what it means for us to follow Jesus's example in his life. Uh, Peter says in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Right? So the first example, the first thing we're supposed to see is that as Christians, as people who follow Jesus Christ, who follow in his steps, uh, one of the, the main things that is on Peter's mind in a, in a culture where Christians are not highly regarded, in a, in a culture where Christians are insulted, he says, the first thing I want you to know is that you and me as Christians, we need to be people marked by our... <laughs> Are you ready? You're not ready. Marked by our submission. <laughs> Did I just trigger you? Submission. That's the word right there. Be subject. It's the same Greek word as submission. You could translate it be submissive for the Lord's sake to the authorities. Be subject to them. Another way of saying it is as Christians, we are supposed to be we are called to be, we are expected to be, and we are commanded to be law-abiding citizens. We're expected, called, and commanded to be law-abiding citizens. And now, why are we supposed to do that? Well, Peter starts to give us the explanation right there in verse 13, because he says we are supposed to do this for the Lord's sake. And what he means by the Lord's sake is he simply means for the, you know, for Jesus's sake, for, for the honor of Jesus, right? For the reputation of Jesus, Christians, people like you and me, we need to default to obedience and submission, okay? So I know I can already feel it and you can feel it. That's bringing up all kind of awkward questions in your mind, right? And it's gonna, there's objections and there are going to be extenuating circumstances to this. But before we go to like all of the ways you don't think you have to apply this to your life, <laughs> let me just remind you that um, 
You know, the, the great German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was famously martyred by the Nazis for, you know, opposing Hitler, and he was uh, part of an assassination attempt against Hitler, uh, you know, and that's part of why he died uh, in, the, in the concentration camp. Uh, but Bonhoeffer uh, changed my life in the cost of discipleship in, in that book because he said, Christian, be careful that you don't take the teeth out of a passage, Right? And what he meant by that is he was saying, when the Bible says something, don't like wiggle out of it to where you don't have to apply it. He says, take the passage for what it says, believe it, and, let it, and you know, kind of stew on it for a little bit, and then expand to other passages to shed light on it. But try to understand what this passage is saying. If you hear the Bible and then you figure out ways you don't have to apply it, well, be careful that you're not sort of taking all the teeth and the power out of the passage. So all that to say, I already know you have a bunch of questions. So I'm going to try to answer questions that I think you may have in your mind and speak to a little bit to how our congregation is moving forward right now. And I'm going to do it by answering three quick questions, okay? So hopefully these are your questions. If not, you can always email me at jernigan at jvilpres.org. And I'd love to continue this conversation with you because I think it's an important one. So what are those three questions? Well, fundamentally, I think we need to ask, okay, we're talking about authority. The Bible says to submit to them. So let's take a big step back. We have to ask, like, why does God have authority structures in place? Why does God, in his providence, create a world where there's government and authority structures? You know, uh, you know Peter is talking when he says, whether it's the emperor or the governors, he's, he's basically saying all of the various levels of government, right? I mean, you know, like the government's like an onion, right? It's like you pull back one layer and there's what? Another layer, and they all stink, right? You know, so it's all these layers. That was a joke, right? You know, so there are all these who are saying, you know, whether it's the regional people like Pontius Pilate, or it's like the, all the big guys, you know, like Emperor Nero, right? He says we're all subject to all of them. So why would God in his providence create a government system in his world? Well, we get a bit of the answer, and a lot more than you may think, in our passage this morning. Look at verse 14. Why does God give governors and emperors? Well, he says part of his reasoning is so that the government will punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So all the different layers of authority that we experience in our life, whether it's local, regional, state, or federal, or whatever, all of those things are designed by God and primarily designed to punish evil and to praise the good. Now, I mean, who here doesn't want injustice to be dealt with? I mean, if you saw something deeply wrong, right? If you were, you know, walking around in downtown Jacksonville and an 85-year-old woman was accosted by a thief and punched in the face and her purse was stolen, you, because you're designed by God, would demand justice for that woman. And you would want to do what? Punish the wicked, right? You would say he needs to be punished. The thief needs to be punished. Or maybe it was her. Maybe it was a girl thief. I don't know. I'm not saying anything, right? You would want a world where evil is punished, right? I mean, you know, you learn this when you are like seven years old, right? I mean, or even two, you know, if you have something and it's stolen from you, you know, your heart, your heart yearns for justice, right? Even at two, right? And that's part of the way God designed us is that we yearn for justice. So part of what the government's role is, is to punish the wicked. 
right? Uh, you know, I used to work for the Army. Uh, before I was a pastor, I worked in the Department of Defense, the DOD. And um, I worked with a guy who had just come out of the Navy. He had done his, you know, tour, and he was back working as a civilian. And we would talk about the government all the time. And I was a political science major, so he liked to talk politics with me. And, you know, one day in the office, he said, I, I don't, I, you know, the government, all the government's supposed to do is just punish bad guys and leave me alone. And I said, well, that's a great, you know, political philosophy. But, you know, the Bible teaches me that there's not just the government's role to punish the bad. The Bible tells me and Peter that actually, for some reason, the, the government's actually supposed to praise those who do good. It's supposed to bless them. Now, maybe, you know, maybe you agree with my Navy buddy, but um, let, me, let me see if I can give you sort of the logic of the Bible, Right? or at least as best I can understand it, this is the logic. Uh, in, in the Bible, the foundational unit is the family, right? And so husbands lead the family. Wives are called to, there's that word again, submit. Husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And then the children are to be subject to the parents and to honor the parents. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And then Paul says in Ephesians that parents are not supposed to exasperate or exhaust their kids or discourage them. Right? But there is an understanding that the family unit is the foundational unit of human society. And then you get to churches and organizations and governments, and you sort of expand out from that foundational unit, right? The family unit is the block that all these things are sort of built after, right? So think about it this for a second. If you have a family, right? Let's say you have a family. When you have kids, how do you treat the kids? Well, you you know, I mean, one way to understand the way you parent is like if they make bad decisions, your goal is to make their lives miserable, right? Are you that honest? You know, like if their kids are doing something bad, you try to make their lives miserable so they don't think that that's the normal way to operate, right? Because you don't want them to normalize bad behavior, right? You know, so like if you're at, you know, Christmas on Friday and your kid is not being very appreciative of grandma's sweater that she knitted him, and he goes, I don't really like the sweater. What do you do? You grab his head and you go like that. And you say, don't say stuff like that, right? Because you want to punish bad and you want your child to grow and be someone who's appreciative. So what you want your son to do is you want to say, grandma, thank you for making me this beautiful sweater, spending all this time. And if your kid does well, what do you do? You praise your kids. You praise what you want repeated. You encourage them to be godly. You encourage them to be righteous. You praise them when they care for people who are disabled and they see them. You praise them when they see the kids at the lunch table at school who have no friends. You praise them when they go out of their way to love other people. You praise them when they see what is right and what is wrong and they can tell the difference. You praise them when they have discernment because you praise what you want repeated, right? I mean, if that's how you manage your family, in God's ideal world, that's what the government is doing, right? It punishes bad decisions and it blesses good decisions, is that, are you understanding that sort of logic? Um, so part of what we have to understand is government and authority and all these structures, they are given to us by God's design. Now, that doesn't mean that every government official is doing exactly what God wants them to do. Of course, that's not the case. That wasn't Peter's case because he tells them to honor the emperor. And the emperor he's talking about is going to soon kill Peter. 
Emperor Nero was one of the worst Caesars. He, he famously fed Christians to the lions and used them to light his parties up at night. He, he burned them alive, right? So the Bible is not saying, well, every government official is this perfect moral person. You're just supposed to submit to them. What it says is we have to have a basic underlining assumption and belief that God in his providence has put these people in authority over us. And that doesn't mean we're always going to agree. And notice that Peter is over and over again going to be using Jesus as his example, right? So, so think about it this way. So, you know, when Jesus is interacting with a governor, you know, uh, Governor Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate, the regional ruler, right? Uh, he is flogged by the governor, right? He's wrongfully flogged. And then he's sentenced to death. And if you, re if you remember from our study in John a few months ago, in John 19, there's a very interesting interaction between Pilate and Jesus, right? Uh, in John 19, 11, Jesus is talking to Pilate. Jesus has already been flogged by Pilate. So he's in excruciating pain. And then Pilate is trying to figure out who Jesus is. And uh, in John 19, uh, notice what Jesus says to Pilate. He says, Jesus answered him, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you don't have any authority over me, you jerk face. You know, you're wrong. Don't you realize what you're doing is wrong? What Jesus says is he acknowledges that for some reason, in, in part of God's providence, in working all things out for his glory, God has ordained that Pilate would be in this position of authority. But Jesus is also telling Pilate that the ultimate authority is not in him and it is not in the emperor. Where does ultimate authority come from? It comes from God, right? So as Christians, we see uh, the purpose of government, all this authority, right? Ideally is to punish evil, Praise the good, right? Okay, so this is also uh, very important to say, this does, of course, this does not mean that you and I owe unflinching obedience to everything that government leaders ever say. Of course it doesn't. And there's all kind of, you know, examples in the Bible to prove that point. What I'm suggesting to you, though, if you're a Christian in the room and you're trying to follow Jesus as your example, I guess what I'm suggesting to you is that for you and me, our default setting, you know, you know what a default setting is? It's like, you know, the, the factory setting, our default setting should be obedience and being in subjection to our leaders. That's our default setting, right? And I think that's the emphasis of what Peter is saying. You and I, we are law-abiding citizens. We don't want to defame Jesus' name. We don't want people to malign the name of Jesus. We want to do it for the Lord's sake. We want to prove to everybody that we are good for society and that we are law-abiding citizens. So our default setting is always going to be to be in subjection to them. So that brings up the second question then. Why, why should we submit to these authorities? especially if they're wicked, right? Well, you know, Peter, again, right, he's writing during the time of Nero, and he certainly was not a righteous person. So why are we supposed to submit to our leaders? Well, Peter tells you in verse 13 that it's for the Lord's sake. It's for the reputation of Jesus. It's for his honor, right? We want to prove to everybody that we are not just revolutionaries trying to overthrow everything in life. We want to be at peace with our neighbors, and we don't want to bring any dishonor to his name. Also, uh, Peter will go on, and he says, this is God's will for us. See verse 15? 
And his will for us is that we would be busy with good works, busy with compassion, so that when people mistreat us, when people attack Christians or when they insult us or they revile us or whatever they're going to do, they're not really going to have anything to say about us because we are trying as best we can to prove to them that we are a holy people set apart for the Lord and we want to love righteousness, right? So we do it for the sake of the Lord's honor and our default setting is obedience, Right? Those are the first two questions. All right, so now let's go to the question you're all asking. I can feel it. You're all wondering, well, when can I disobey? When am I supposed to disobey? When do I get to do that? When do I get to do that, right? So we're all wondering about, right? Like I said, there are plenty of examples in the Bible, right, where believers have to disobey government rules and edicts, right? There's just, it's just the nature of reality, right? So, uh, you know, there's all kind of examples we could point to, right? There are the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, these midwives who are delivering babies, and Pharaoh wants to kill the male Hebrew infants. Do the midwives go along with that? No, they don't go along with that, and they are commended for saving the infant's lives. Of course, in the book of Daniel, we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will not bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, even though the government is telling them, you must bow down and worship this idol. And then, of course, also in Daniel, Daniel is told that he cannot pray to his God for 30 days. You know, it's only this time limit, only 30 days, don't pray to any other God except to Nebuchadnezzar, don't pray to anybody else, you only pray to this God. And what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel turns around and he goes and he prays three times a day to his God, the only true God, the God of Israel. And he does it three times a day. And of course, that's what makes him end up in the lion's den. So there are opportunities, uh, situations in life where we are called to disobey when authorities tell us to do something. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about having the whole canon, right, the whole Bible, is we can take passages like Peter very seriously and say, okay, well, my default setting is to be obedient for the sake of Jesus, but how do I go about when I feel like my conscience is being uh, compromised or someone's telling me to do something that God tells me not to? You know, the Bible tells me don't kill, so if I help Pharaoh kill the infants, I can't do that in good conscience, the Bible tells me to only honor one Lord. I can't pray to some other God for 30 days. I don't care how long it's going to last. I can't pray to any other God but God. Well, notice that in the book of Acts, we actually learn a little bit more about Peter. So the guy who wrote this also in the book of Acts was told twice by authorities to stop preaching about Jesus Christ. And you know how Peter responds? Well, in Acts chapter 4, uh, the apostles are taken and they're told to stop. The authorities say, stop doing what you're doing. Stop preaching Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. <laughs> For we cannot but speak but what we have seen and heard. Right? He's saying, well, whether I'm supposed to listen to you or God, I know where I'm going to fall on that one. You have to decide for yourself whether to listen to man or to God. And it's very similar to Acts chapter 5. In the very next chapter, again, guess what? The apostles are being told to stop preaching Christ. And what does Peter say? Acts 5, 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So what I want to suggest to you, if I can try to make this as simple as possible, and again, if this doesn't answer every one of your questions, you know, email me, we can talk about it. 
But I think the easiest way for us as Christians to understand how we're supposed to follow the example of Jesus is we are called to be submissive to our rulers, to honor them, to pray for them. And the only time we should really be thinking about openly disobeying them is when God's word and his law would be compromised. When the, when the government tells us to do something that we know is wrong. You know, our, our opinion on those people or even their moral character is not grounds for disobedience. Just because we don't like them or we didn't vote for them or we don't like their character, that doesn't mean we are free to dishonor them or disobey them. I mean, think about it this way. This is from a different place in time in life. It was many years ago, like three or four years ago. Remember the old world before COVID, the old world? I lived in a different state. And I'll give you an example about how I think this works itself out. Here's, here's, what I, here's an example that I would use for what I mean. It's not about our preferences. As much as you may hold to strong political views, right? Um, so a few years ago, I had a friend who was at my church and, you know, I was, I'm their pastor. And so, you know, they tell, people tell me all kind of cool things about their life and beautiful things. And then sometimes they tell me things I can't agree with. And so if you've been around me long enough, you know that sometimes I have to employ what I call the Presbyterian grunt, which is when you tell me something and I can't necessarily agree with you or disagree with you. So you'll say something, I go, mmm, mmm, mmm. Sometimes that means I agree with you, you know? Mmm, good point, pastor. And then there's other times it's like, mmm, I don't know how to respond to what you're telling me right now. So anyway, so this guy sits down and he meets with me and he says, you know, I'm having all kind of, I'm having all kind of back pain, right? I'm having all this back pain, right? It affects my quality of life. And I said, okay, what are you doing about it? And you know what he said? He said, I know a guy. And you know what I said? Hmm. I don't like where this is going. And I said, what do you mean you know a guy? And he said, I know a guy who I go and I get weed from. And when my back hurts, I smoke the weed and my back doesn't hurt as much. And what did I say? Hmm. You know, I was living in a different time, in a different state where that was illegal. To every state law, that was illegal in the state we lived in. And it was illegal to the federal law. So there's no federal provision at this time. There are no state provisions at this time. There was no medical marijuana available to him. He knew a guy. He knew a guy and he got illegal drugs. So what did I say? Mm. <laughs> oh, man. And I said, interesting. You know, are you worried about your testimony? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're a Christian and you are breaking the law at every state and federal level to buy illegal substances. Aren't you worried about your testimony to that guy who's selling you drugs? What if he found out you were a Christian? And he said, oh, oh, okay. Okay, full disclosure, bro, I'm a libertarian, so I don't really believe the government has a right to dictate what substances are and aren't permissible. So it's all good. And what did I say? Mm, uh. I had to use the grunt a lot in this conversation. And I said, look, I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not you think, you know, the medical marijuana is helping you or, you know, whether or not it should even be illegal. I'm not, I'm not even going to argue. I'm not even going to talk about that right now. We, we are Christians. We are obligated to be submissive to the laws of our land. Your default setting is to obey, even if there is suffering involved even if this makes you suffer. That's all over Peter. 
Just because you don't like something, just because you think the law is wrong, doesn't mean you have to go along with it. Or doesn't mean you can ignore it. You know, I, I said, there's no, you know, there's no 11th commandment, you know, that says you can smoke the doobie if you want to, right? That's, that's from like the book of opinions or something, right? Now, of course, you know, the law changed in that state a few years later and he, he, got, he got it permissively. But he agreed when we met, he said, okay, I'm going to stop buying it illegally because, not because I think that's the right law. It's not the right law. He said, I'm not going to agree with the law. I think it's wrong. But for the sake of Christ, I will not do it anymore. And I will wait until a time that it's legal. And I said, praise God. That is the Christian response, right? So now this brings up, how are you and I supposed to be operating today? How well are we applying these passages as a congregation? Are we honoring our governor and our leaders? Well, I think this is why as Christians, it's so important for you and me to not defame or dishonor our rulers when we speak of them. We all know that there is a way to speak about somebody with whom we deeply disagree and still show them some measure of honor. And that's what Peter expects of Christians, that there is a way of speaking about people, even, even wretched people like Nero. Even wretched Nero, we can still honor. That doesn't mean we agree with them. That doesn't mean we endorse their character. All we're saying is we can honor these people even if we don't agree with them. And then the only times we know that we are on solid biblical ground is when we are told to do something that violates God's commands, when it goes against what God says to do. And so as some of you know, a few weeks ago, I released a pastoral letter on sort of where we are in culture and all that kind of stuff. And uh, some of you, many of, many of you probably know, we decided to stay open over the last few weeks. And our reasoning, just so you know, I'm not asking you to agree with me, but this is our reasoning. Uh, when it comes to worship, corporate worship, Sabbath worship, we do not recognize that the state can tell us not to do it anymore. If we were Chinese and we lived in China, we do not pretend to think that the Chinese government has authority over the church. It just doesn't. In fact, you know, many of us, we give to missionaries who are actively preaching the gospel in places where the government makes it illegal to do so. And we know that they are right. So as Christians living today, we have to ask ourselves, can the government tell us to totally shut down corporate worship? Which now, of course, you know, the rule a few weeks ago was 25, but functionally that would shut us down because it takes 25 people to just turn this place open. Now, our reasoning went sort of like this. We need to honor the governor. We need to pray for the governor. Uh, we need to do as much as we can to not dishonor her. But we have to obey God, not man. We cannot close the churches and turn people away who want to come to corporate worship. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with me. I expect many of you don't agree with me. But I want you to see that we are trying as your spiritual leaders and I'm trying as your pastor and I hope you Christian are trying to prove that your default setting is one of obedience, one of honor and one of respect. But at the same time, if you feel like God's law is being violated, you will have the courage to stand up and say, I will defy in the midst of my honoring of you. I will respect you to the end and yet that doesn't mean I agree with you. Is that making sense? Is that making sense? You know, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter says that we are free people, right? We're free people. 
which means we're free from sin, that no matter what anybody else says, ultimately it's just between us and God, right? Um, you know, Paul says it this way, even if you were a slave when you became a Christian, never forget this, you're actually a freed man in Christ. And don't forget this either in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you are a freed person when you become a Christian, if you're free, remember, you become a slave of Christ, <laughs> right? You know, and that's very similar to what Peter says, right? Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, but don't use that freedom to cover up, you know, things that are blatantly evil, but instead live as servants or slaves of God. Is that making sense? So to me, I hope you're seeing that, you know, our example is to be one of submission, um, honoring, praying. But that doesn't mean, of course, that we should just give unflinching obedience in every way. And for better or for worse, that is the deep prayer of the elders here at your church. As we are trying to both uh, make Jesus Christ the ultimate authority, but also prove that we are honoring our regional and government leaders. And the last thing I'll say about that is just... Um, you know, you'll, you'll notice uh, pretty soon that, uh, if you haven't already, that almost every Sunday, we as a church pray for our governor by name and by, uh, we pray for our president by name, and sometimes we pray for our mayor by name and all of these government officials. And we do that because we are actually trying to follow the example that Jesus has given us and to obey his word. And that's exactly what uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells Christians to do. He says, I desire in every place that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, especially kings and those in high positions, right? So to me, this is the Christian way of interacting, right? This is, we pray, we honor, and we disobey not because, you know, we're just angry and we dislike what they say. We disobey only when the Bible says you have to take this stand. You know, does it make sense? All right, so let me sort of just finish up with this. Again, like I said, I'm not saying everything that there is to say about this passage. We'll pick it up in a few weeks. But I want you to see that really where Peter's going is that we live, we operate this way because this is the way that Jesus lived and operated, right? And he says that even when Jesus was reviled, look at verse 23, even when Jesus was insulted and reviled and lied about, he didn't do it in return, I mean, doing, doing it in return, you know, that's the way of the world, right? If you punch me, I'm going to punch you back twice as hard. The, the Jesus way is incredible. It's when you're reviled, you say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you are insulted, you don't threaten. And when you are mistreated, you continue to entrust yourself because you know in the end, God is just. And you can trust that. And in fact, the way we operate is so that the gospel, the good news of Jesus's forgiveness is the main thing that we proclaim to the world because it is the main thing that this world needs to hear. You know, when I think about 1 Peter um, in the Bible, especially chapter 2, these are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Um, it reminds me of a man named John Perkins. Uh, if you were here a few months ago, we read one of his books called Let Justice Roll Down. Um, you know, you won't find John Perkins um, in the Bible, uh, but as one person famously said, you will find the Bible in John Perkins. And the reason is because John Perkins uh, is a black man from Mississippi. He's in his 90s now. And in 1970, you know, he was famous. Uh, he was famously tortured and beaten by officers. You know, they, they stuck forks up his nose and they, you know, took a, a, a revolver and they kept shooting it without any bullets so he could hear the click near his head. They knocked his teeth out. They battered his head. 
And uh, he, they did it because, you know, he was fighting for civil rights in Mississippi in this time. But um, in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, John Perkins starts to show what happened to him as the spirit of God started to work on his heart and mind. So if you read the book, after he's beaten and he's bloodied, he's taken to a hospital bed. And listen to how the gospel of Jesus Christ starts to work its way through him. Uh, Perkins writes these words. The spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. And it blotted out everything else in my mind. Because when Jesus looked at that mob that had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. The spirit of God kept working on me and in me until I could say with Jesus, I forgive them too. I promised him that I would return good for evil and not evil for good. He's quoting 1 Peter. And he gave me the love I knew I would need to fulfill his command to me of love your enemy. Because of Christ, God himself met me and healed my heart and mind with his love. The spirit of God helped me to really believe what I had so often professed, that only in the love of Christ is there any hope for me or for anyone else. After that, God gave me the strength and motivation to rise up out of my bed and return to Mendenhall, Mississippi and spread a little bit more of his love around. Oh, I know man is bad, depraved. There's something built into him that makes him want to be superior. If the black man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad, just as bad. So I can't hate the white man. The problem is spiritual. Black or white, we all need to be born again. See, friends, John Perkins believed that Jesus really was his savior, that he knew his heart was black by sin. It was depraved, and only Jesus could offer the forgiveness and new birth that he needed. But Perkins also believes that Jesus is the example for how he is supposed to operate with people. So even when they beat him, eventually the spirit of God cries, Father, forgive them like you forgave me. You see, friends, this is what the world needs us to proclaim and it needs us to show them by our example that we actually believe the gospel. Uh, friends, that's the invitation to know Jesus as your savior and Jesus as your example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to take the punishment for our sins, uh, to fix and to redeem this broken world. And Father, we thank you that he came to us as an example. Now, Father, we pray for wisdom as a congregation that we would cling tightly to your word. Uh, Lord, that we would repent of sin if it's coming to mind. Lord, that we would love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, that we would be sojourners in this life. Lord, that we would do nothing to dishonor you, but that we would know and apply the will of God for us. And Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit gives us the power to do it and hope for today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.